Today's reading is from Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And for the past, I don't know, some weeks now, we've been walking through one of the earliest letters to one of the earliest churches. And the Apostle Paul is writing to this first century church. And as we've been going through this letter to this first century church, we've discovered that although it was written very much situated to a, a church all the way back in the first century, it's just as relevant and the words have just as much meaning and impact for you and I today in the 21st century. If you've been with us, you've seen how this early church has been wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. And in particular, they've been wrestling with what's at the core of the Christian faith, what is called the gospel. This message from Jesus that's about Jesus that's also for us. And it's this true message, the gospel, that's at the very core. It shapes everything that you and I do. Every, every single way in which we think about the world, our historical framing, the ways in which we engage with one another. And the gospel is defined as follows. The gospel is this good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which, if you trust it, if you lean into it, it saves you from sin and gives you a new life now and for eternity. And the Apostle Paul, one of the earliest adherents to this true message, who was convinced himself by the resurrected Jesus, he's absolutely adamant that, yes, nothing can be taken away from this message, but the greater error, the, the easier temptation is to add something to it as if it's not enough, as if there's other components to this message that need to, to couple the core and what we've seen is that when anything is added to the gospel, you lose everything. When anything is added to the gospel, you lose everything. Over the past some weeks, we've seen some of these things that we lose. And first off, we talked about when anything is added to the gospel, we actually lose people. Like family, brothers and sisters who are, yes, part of the family of God in Christ because of what God in Christ has done for us are treated as second-class citizens and even begin to doubt that they are legitimate members of that family because of these additional elements added to the core of the gospel. When we add anything to the gospel, 
We also lose this unshakable security we have in the core of our identity in Jesus. When we add anything to the gospel, we not only lose that, but we also lose the past, the hope of these past promises that God has made to those who trust him. When we add anything to the gospel, we lose power, we lose freedom, we lose everything. And there's a lot at stake here at the core of this gospel, this good news message, because there is no other gospel. There is no other message that comes with such rich and robust and yet beautifully simple news that alters the way we see the world, the way we see our lives and comes with unbelievable power and how to live our lives then differently. It changes everything. And this news, it doesn't just change everything here. It doesn't just change everything here. As much as our heart and heads are so integral to what the gospel is doing, it changes everything here. It changes how we live our lives together. And, and community's hard, right, folks? I mean, even, let's be clear, even with friends who share your cultural background, your stage of life, and ha happen to be proximate to you, those friendships, given enough time, wax and wane. When you have everything going for them, they're hard to maintain. They're hard to, con to keep going. And then what God says now is with this family that he's adopted people from different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic makeups, different orientations, different genders. And he's like, hey, hey, you're all going to be one big forever family into eternity. There's bound to be some issues, right? And so we come to our question this morning. As we've been journeying through this letter to this first century church in Galatia, the question that bubbles up is what difference does the gospel make for community? What difference does the gospel make for this church community? And today we're going to rediscover that the gospel actually gives us a whole new toolkit. Some of you thought this was left over from first Friday and we just didn't have time to clean up. No, it's actually integral to this morning's message. The gospel gives us a whole new toolkit to cultivate a flourishing community all the way into eternity. And it's different than the law toolkit that we used to have or any other toolkit we used to have before we came to Christ and embraced this gospel message. This toolkit, it's empowered by the Spirit. It's given by the Spirit. It's shaped by the gospel. And what we're going to hear from Paul this morning in Galatians chapter 6 is that it's very practical. And he's going to give us the instructions in the midst of these imperatives, these to-dos, and how to employ these tools. He's going to give us the tools. He's going to give us a, a test to see if we're employing these tools rightly. And then he's even going to give us a template on what it looks like to employ these tools well. And listen, we have to employ them, folks. The gospel, this amazing message, this news about what God has done in history through Christ has always been opposed to earning. This in no way, shape, or form is an avenue to somehow try to earn our acceptance, but it has never, ever, 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 ever been opposed to effort. If you look up back to verse 25 of chapter 5 in Galatians, yes, we receive our life from the Spirit, but we still have to what? Walk in it. We still have to walk in it. And if we don't learn how to employ these this gospel toolkit, we very, very well may lose the community that we need, the community that we've been given, the community we've been entrusted with. So let's see how and what these tools are and how to employ them, okay? So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Galatians chapter 6. 
as we kind of open up this gospel toolkit and see what's going on in there, right? That was a bit on the nose, but you're following along. Great. Um, so Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And also, whenever you see the word brothers, this was speaking to the whole community. So you can think brothers and sisters. So brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who have the spirit living within you, you who have been regenerated and are now following empowered by the spirit should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. So let's stop right there. This language of caught, it has the idea of both surprise as well as the language of stuck. You know, and then the language of transgression, this is a unique word when we talk about failure or pain or, or, or disobedience. It's the language of crossing over a boundary, either in a relationship with one another horizontally or vertically with God, and often the two are intertwined. But what we need to understand here is that this is not intentionally a premeditated act. This is not like somebody was planning out for months and they finally struck. This was a bit of a surprise. They're caught in this crossing of boundaries. In other words, this is normal human community stuff. Broken human beings on the pathway by the power of the Spirit becoming whole in Jesus and someone sins against someone else. Someone hurts someone else. And the repercussions and the pain are there in that community. Now, what do we do? Now, if we use our old toolkit from the law, I was going to bring it, but I didn't, I didn't put it in there. I do have one at home. It's, it's a lot like, if you use your old toolkit, it's a lot like the hammer, right? Or maybe a sledgehammer. When somebody sins against you or against someone you love, you're, you're ready to bring the smack down. Because listen, you, you, don't, you don't hurt me. Do you realize what you did to me? Do you, do you realize what you did to my love, loved ones? Do you realize what you did to God? We're through. And so the relationship is smashed. But when we come to the gospel, we're given a completely different tool. The gospel actually equips us and calls us to employ now gentle rebuke. Gentle rebuke. And it's a lot like I was thinking about it. It's a lot like this weeder. Anybody ever used one of these? When you've got weeds in your flower garden, um, or any garden of that matter, you can try to reach down and just try to pull it by pinching the weeds out. Often what, you, what happens, you just pull off the top, and you pull off the leaves, and there's a little bit of a struggle. But if you use this weeder, you don't actually have to be that forceful. You gently put it along the stem, just jiggle it a little bit, and then you pull and it's a gentle process that gets all the way down to the root a lot more commonly. And this is what we're called to. When, when, when we're engaging one another, we're supposed to come when there's been this sin, when there's been these crossing of boundaries, when community, when we chafe against one another, we're meant to come with this manner of gentleness, not brashness, not harshness, but gentleness to help weed out the sin in each other's lives. And the language rebuke, some of you may be asking, where is that in the text? It's embedded in the word restore. The word restore was actually a medical term for mending fractured bones. Mending fractured bones. Now, can you mend a fractured bone without first admitting that it is broken and fractured? No. Rebuke is communicating, hey, that's broken, it's fractured, it needs to be mended. There have been plenty of times, I don't know about you, 
There have been plenty of times in my life where there's something painful happening or there's a relationship that's in a bit of a, a little bit of a turmoil. And I don't know why. And it's not until somebody comes alongside of me and says, Gabe, do you realize what you said? Do you realize what you did here? Do you realize how that was communicated, how you actually were crossing some boundaries, how that led to some brokenness? I needed someone to come alongside in the manner of gentleness, but simultaneously communicate the brokenness in that situation. Why? For the purpose of restoration. This is what's so beautiful about the gospel. And the toolkit that we're given is that the gospel still calls sin, sin. It still highlights brokenness. But the law would just leave us there. Now with the gospel, we've been equipped with some of the most profound avenues for restoration. We've been given the, the pathway for forgiveness. Because, man, if we've been forgiven by God of all that we have done in the cross of Christ and his sufficient work and this amazing life, death, and resurrection and the forgiveness of our sin, how can I not also forgive one another? And we've been given the pathway for reconciliation, for forgiveness, and restoration. This gentle rebuke is the first tool. But there's another tool that always works in tandem with gentle rebuke. Look with me here at the last half of verse 1. The Apostle Paul continues to write, Keep watch, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, before the gospel... Whenever somebody, when you saw somebody in the midst of failure or brokenness, there were two common responses. The, and the law kind of gave us the tool of the measuring tape. I like to think of it that way. The measuring tape is like when somebody fell, you measured yourself up against them and realized you were three feet taller and felt pretty good about yourself. Because at least I didn't do what they did. Instantly you find yourself in a space of superiority. Or the measuring tape is a way of like measuring out the appropriate distance. It ostracizes those who have fallen or who have failed. Because you're terrified if, if they have failed in that way, they might contaminate me. And if they contaminate me, if I get too close to them, then I might also fall in the same position and I'll be where they are. And I don't want to be where they are, so I'm going to keep my distance. But when we come to the gospel, we're given a whole different kind of toolkit that leads to a flourishing community for the long haul. And here it is. We're given humble self-assessment. Humble self-assessment. In the image, the tool are gloves. And I'm going to tell you why that is in just a minute. Now, humble self-assessment, humility as a whole, is completely in line with the gospel. And arrogance is absolutely antithetical to the gospel. If you have any form of arrogance, then you are not embracing wholly the message of the gospel. Because if we are so broken that we needed God to die for us, how can we ever say we're better than anyone? But also, humility is not self-pity. It's not being obsessed with how bad or broken we are, such that that becomes the center focus. Humility is the honest admittance that prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's the honest admittance of our weakness that when we see somebody else in brokenness or sin, we come alongside of them and we say, I would be right where you are, but by the grace of God. That's humility. But it's not just an admittance of our weakness, such that this now gives us cause to keep our distance. If we have to keep watch on ourselves because we also might fall, this isn't now then an excuse to keep our distance from anyone who has fallen. Instead, 
humble self-assessment is a call not just to honesty about your own weakness, but also a call to see the needs of others as primary. And this is why Paul makes this sharp turn in verse 2, which feels really strange unless you understand how humility is so crucial to this next step. When he says what in verse 2? Bear one another's burdens. There's another imperative. Do this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is like the only time this phrase shows up in all the New Testament. What's the law of Christ? It's his love. If you love me, you'll, you'll do, obey my commands. And what are, my, what are his commands? Oh, that you love one another. That you would love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Humility says that there is no burden too great, no burden too small when your brother and sister in Christ is wrestling, is struggling. If someone is languishing in temptation or wrestling through the depression of brokenness in life, we're there. We're there. And that's where these gloves are so crucial. Humility at the end of the day says whatever you're going through, whatever's going on, I want to carry it with you because I'm not better than you. You're still worthy. You are worthy of my time. Nothing you're going through is of less importance than what's going on in my life. We put on these gloves so that we can care and bear one another's burdens. Such a crucial component of humility. Humility isn't just being able to recognize what's going on in your heart. It's being able to look at others and say, I'm there for you. Humility is best displayed in action, not just in disposition. And that's what's so crucial about this gospel toolkit. It always shows itself in the practical day-to-day of life. And that's also what's so important. Paul is not in any way, shape, or form shirking individual responsibility in this passage either. It's not like we can just let everything go and let everybody else pick up our slack. Because that's why he gets in verse 5 and he says everybody has to bear their own load. Right? There's an element where we all are bearing certain elements. We have individual responsibility to carry out the callings and the, the tasks that we've been given as followers of Jesus. But there are certain seasons, there are certain times in life where there are burdens beyond ourselves that we cannot make it unless somebody comes alongside of us. And that is the role of the church. We've been given this unbelievable toolkit that says when those seasons come, we'll be there. When those times happen, we'll be there. And you'll never be able to receive help or give help unless the gospel has given you the tool of humble self-assessment. Which leads us to our third tool Before we get to the test, the third tool, let's look down at verse number 10. Paul writes, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone. Not just expect good from everyone. Not just, you know, know, do good to a few people. People. Instead, we are to look for opportunities with everyone who is around us. Everyone means everyone. Looking for opportunities with everyone who's around us to leverage our skills, our influence, our social networks, our finances, that we might pursue the good, the rich good of those that God has placed around us. Now, the old toolkit would say, let's try to extract as much good from every interaction that we can and give as little as we can. What a deal. What a bargain. 
But that is not the way the follower of Jesus is to now lead their lives. The gospel has given us a different toolkit and called us now to employ what we've been equipped equipped with, and that is zealous generosity. To employ zealous generosity, which I like to think of as a lot more like this seed spreader. Anybody ever used one of these little noddies? So you put the seed in there, and then you open it all the way up, and you start spinning it. And the seed just starts flying. Um, if you're ever planting grass or whatever else you want to use a spreader for, whatever you're spreading, it just it goes all around. And, it, and it's very liberal in its, you know, in, it, in its extraction of the seed and sending it out. Now, in the midst of all this, you realize that the seeds you have been given, what you've been entrusted with isn't yours in the first place, and you're just ready to, to throw it out there to see a grand harvest, that there would be a rich, rich harvest. It doesn't mean to be clear that you're not strategic or intentional. But the idea is that we're liberal in our generosity, that we're overflowing and looking for opportunities, understanding and coming from an economics of surplus. And especially when it comes to the household of faith, the church, the Apostle Paul's talking about here. And what is, why is Paul bring this up here? Um, well, for starters... Imagine you have limited resources, which all of us do to a certain degree, and say, <laughs> right, um, and say you can only give so much to certain things. Well, Paul says if you've got to make a choice, start with the church, especially when it comes to the household of faith. In the first century, there were not the broader social safety nets that we have today. And if you were a Christian, Chances are you may even lose your job for professing Christ because each of these different workplaces had a guild and at the center of that guild was an idol. And if you said, hey, I am a follower of Jesus and I will not worship the God at the center of this guild, you might even get ostracized from the broader steel workers mill and you might lose your job and who's going to take care of you but Christians. So especially the household of faith, when things are going on, especially the household of faith, coming alongside of one another and caring for one another and seeking to you know, employ this zealous generosity towards one another, which is also why he kind of gives you a little case study at verse 6. Some of you are like, I was waiting for Gabe to talk about this one. Case study at verse 6 when he's talking about teachers who open up the word and actually teach those. If you, if, if you have someone who's dedicating their life to opening up the scriptures, to, to, to reveal in a thoughtful way God's word as it manifests in your life, in the life of your community, and it's actually leading to fruit because you're better living in line with what God has designed for you, then don't hold back. Don't come with that extraction mindset when you're in the gathering of the household of faith. Don't say, well, I got my goodies and I'm out. No, you should be honoring. You should actually employ zealous generosity to the teacher, to the church to that household of faith. This is another one of those case in points. You're looking for opportunities for generosity, not holding back and trying to always get a bargain. Because what is the church, folks? It's not just a place where the gospel is proclaimed as plausible, but it's a place where in the community, in the surrounding community, they look in and they say the gospel really is livable that it transforms lives now and into eternity. Not perfection, 
not this side of Christ's return, but it does transform and make community even possible such that they say this good news works. So we've been given these rich tools to cultivate a flourishing community. When you think about gentle rebuke or we think about humble self-assessment or zealous generosity, these kinds of tools are going to cultivate by the power of the Spirit and they're shaped by the gospel, cultivate a flourishing community that lasts even into an eternity, a community you and I need, a community I need, a community we long for. But are you employing these kinds of tools? Are these the tools that you're employing when you're engaged in conversations or when transgression pops up and catches us off guard? Are these the tools that you're employing in those situations or are you coming with arrogance or conceit rather than allowing the gospel to bring a humble self-assessment about your own weakness and simultaneously empowering you and calling you now to come alongside and bear the burdens of others because no one's burden is below you? And are you employing zealous generosity? Well, the Apostle Paul actually gives us a test in the midst of this as to whether or not we're using these tools. And the question that sparks in the midst of this test is if you want to know whether or not you're using these tools employed by the Spirit and shaped by the gospel, ask yourself, do some assessment, what kind of community is growing around you? What kind of community is growing around you? Because listen, God isn't mocked, right? And what, what Paul's talking about here is that you can sow a little bit and you can fool yourself and you can fool other people, but at the end of the day, your harvest is going to come to fruition. What you, what you sow, you will reap. Look with me here at verse 8 and what the Apostle Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, flesh is a metaphor that Paul is employing to talk about life before Christ, a life that was centered exclusively in my desires by my own strength and with my own former categories, where life in the Spirit is now a life empowered by the Spirit and found in Christ and shaped by whole new categories as to the way in which the flourishing life looks. And what Paul is saying is, look, if you invest, if you, if you actually are really zealously generous in all that God has given you and focusing it specifically on yourself. You know what you're going to reap? You're going to reap corruption. And this community is going to start to fall apart. Instead of confronting one another with gentle rebuke, if you go up to verse 26 of chapter 5, Paul gives you three warnings. He says, don't, you know, let there not be conceit, provoking, or envy. If, if you're not coming shaped by the gospel, but instead sowing to the flesh, pouring everything you've got focused in on yourself, you're going to provoke people in anger when you come to confront. Because it wasn't about loving them to life. It was about showing how far off they are and how right you are. Because you've got to prove, you've got to earn your identity again. There is no such thing as humble self-assessment when you're just centered in yourself. Instead, it's going to be a way of ah, mocking those who have failed. And then when you fail, because you will, you'll be so entrenched and downplayed in self-pity that you'll never be able to pull yourself out. 
And generosity? Who's got time for generosity? Because you'll be so consumed with envy when you're just sowing to yourself. You'll be so consumed with envy that if you give to anyone else, you're building them up and you're trying to prove just how much better and worthy you are of glory than they are. And what you're going to find is either by your own choosing or by the choosing of those around you that you're utterly alone. It will not get you what you want. Often, you know, my kids and I, we have this little liturgy in, home, in our homes. When they throw a temper tantrum, I'll say, what do temper tantrums get you? And they'll say, nothing that you want. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, so they like start crying like, all right, all right, all right. What do temper tantrums get you? Nothing that you want. Oh, okay. So what will help get you what you want? Listen, when you're so into the flesh, you're not going to get what you want. You're going to find yourself alone, and then you're going to be angry first at yourself, then at God, and then at everyone else, and you're going to say, why won't they love me? Where are you sowing this morning? What are those who are closest to you? What's the harvest that's being revealed there? What do you see in those relationships? What's the kind of community that's growing around you? But when you sow to the Spirit, and listen, this is not some let go and let God holy idleness, right? It's not just like, well, all I really need to do is just sit in my room and open my Bible. Well, that, that's a good thing to do sometimes, but you cannot live your life like that all the time. Nor is that what we're talking about here and what Paul is highlighting here. Instead, it's a yielding to the Spirit that has been shaped by the Word before you, but now lived in the community around you. And it's come to be shaped by the gospel. And it's employing these gospel-shaped tools that you've been equipped with. That yes, the Spirit fills you and carries you to gently rebuke those who are around you and also to receive gentle rebuke. To come with self humble self-assessment and to simultaneously look towards zealous generosity in every opportunity that comes around you. And what you'll get, now listen, the primary emphasis of all of this reward is coming when Christ returns. But we do get a foretaste because eternal life isn't just there and then, it's breaking into now, which is why we have the Spirit, which is a foretaste of the life to come. The community, the church, us, can actually become now the hope to those looking on that community can be different, that relationships can be life-giving when they're centered on Christ and empowered by the Spirit, and He's equipped us with the tools to do so. This isn't some health and wealth, prosperity gospel stuff, because when you do it right, suffering and persecution is promised us. It's going to be hard, but it's so much better. And one of the greatest temptations amidst community because of its difficulty, whether it's a relationship at work, within the church, another Christian, a family member, what have you, is when the going gets tough, we give up. Which is why Paul brilliantly in our passage in verse 9 says, well, look at verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. He knows it's hard. He's not saying, hey, if you just let the Spirit fill you, it's going to be so easy. No, don't grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't, don't grow faint. And is, listen, listen, the issue isn't here physical strength. The issue isn't a physical capacity one. It's a trust capacity one. In the midst of this, in the midst 
of the difficulties of community. Though that old toolkit with the hammer and the tape measure, that fits nicely in our hands. And it's a familiar toolkit to begin to re-employ when we're in our relationships, but it won't get you what you want. And so in the midst of those moments, when you begin to grow weary, remember the, the, the toolkit you've been given and trust these gospel tools will bring about the best. There's always this distance between what's planted and harvest, right? There's always a bit of faith. There's always a bit of trust that when you put those seeds out there, that something will come up. In the midst of that doubt, when you're beginning to grow weary, trust these gospel tools will bring about the best because they take their shape from the gospel. They're empowered by the Spirit. And look at verse 9. Does it say we might receive a harvest? Does it say take your chance? You may receive a harvest. No, 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 no. The harvest is sure, but it requires trust. And you get a foretaste of that here in this community if you let the Spirit guide you in gentle rebuke humble self-assessment, and zealous generosity. And one of the best templates for all of that. So not only you have tools and you have a test, but one of the greatest templates for all of that is the Apostle Paul himself. You know, Paul, this is one of the first churches he's engaged. Do you see that in chapter 4? He had like some physical issues and this church took care of him. They cared for him, and he wasn't like a burden to them. I mean, for Paul and, and the Galatians, Paul wasn't just an apostle. He was their friend. He was their pastor. He was someone who looked after them. They have this deep, intimate relationship. But then they'd forgotten the gospel. These false teachers had come in and began to distort what God and Christ had been doing, and then they forgot Paul. And you feel the schism in this relationship. And in verse 11, the apostle Paul picks up the pen himself. He'd had like an amanuensis, a scribe, writing down these words, these thoughts. But then Paul takes the pen, and the letters get bigger. One, for emphasis. But then two, because his eyesight is all screwed up because he'd been beaten so many times for the gospel. And they say, oh, this is the handwriting of our friend, our pastor, our apostle Paul. And this whole letter is an exercise in gentle rebuke, is it not? This whole letter. Now he takes the false teachers to task. <laughs> but he's pursuing this church here in Galatia. Galatia. He's extending to them, highlighting, yes, brokenness, but what he longs for is restoration. What he longs for is reconciliation. What he longs for is forgiveness, that they might be reunited one to each other. And he's writing this from a pastoral heart. And humble, I mean, you think about all the places that Paul could give out his pedigree, all the things he'd suffered through, all the things that he'd gone through, all of his, his exercise and his training but what does he say in verse 14? What an example of humble self-assessment. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He boasts in the cross. And what an amazing example of zealous generosity in that he gave everything for this gospel, for this church, for his family. But of course... This wasn't original with Paul, was it? Paul's following someone's example such that even when you get to verse 17, I just love this. When he's talking about the scars he has from the beatings he'd received for the gospel, what does he call them? The marks of Jesus. Jesus wasn't, and the gospel wasn't just a message to associate with, but by the power of the Spirit and the new life given in the gospel, the, 
He, he is to call, he's called to follow the example of Jesus, to whom the cross becomes the greatest gentle rebuke to all of our sin, that calls us all to utter humility and simultaneously the greatest picture of zealous generosity. Oh, centered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What's the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust it, saves you from sin and gives you new life now and for eternity. And look at the community it's been building. Starting with Paul and then the church in Galatia, now you and me and us, we've been entrusted with this amazing message. We've been equipped with the tools to cultivate a flourishing community empowered by the Spirit, centered in this gospel with Jesus Christ reigning supreme over all. Why don't we lean into it a little bit more? And let's watch Jesus bring our community to flourishing all the way into eternity. Amen? Let's pray. God, you've given us so much an unshakable identity in Christ, a rich and diverse family adopted through the work of Christ. You've given us power in the Spirit. You've given us freedom from sin and cycles of destruction. You've given us hope in your promises. And you've even given us the tools to cultivate a flourishing community. God, may we not be so arrogant to try to blaze our own trail, but may we trust your word and the wisdom that it provides for us, even still in the 21st century. And in the time between planting and harvest, may we continue to lean into your tools, empowered by your spirit and shaped by the gospel, all for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.